Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And when I was doing my research on this gentleman, I was just intrigued to see his love of leadership and connection and neuroscience. So we are traveling to the Netherlands today, and I'd like to introduce you to Alain Hunkins, and let me tell you a little bit about him. He is a leadership expert but he connects the science of high performance with the performing art of leadership. Leaders trust him to unlock their potential and expand their influence, which leads to superior results, increased engagement, higher levels of retention, and greater organizational and personal satisfaction. He has a gift for translating complex concepts from psychology, neuroscience, and organizational behavior to be simple and practical and can be applied on the job. So to say I'm excited for this interview is clearly an understatement of my emotion right now. So Alain, welcome to the show. Deb, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Thank you. I, I have found another kindred spirit who loves leadership and neuroscience and taking complex things and just making them easy in layman's terms. So very, very excited to interview you today. Yeah, that's great stuff. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Now, when I think about leadership, it's not something we aspire to as a young child. So my first question to you is, where did your passion and love for leadership derive from? Yeah, you're right. I didn't start off saying, I want to be a leadership scholar, researcher, practitioner when I was five years old, for sure. Yeah, so for me, I think where it started from is I've always been highly, highly attuned to people. And a lot of that has to do with what I've found has turned out to be a fairly unusual childhood. So I grew up in New York City. That's not unusual. I was raised by a single mom and my grandmother. That also is not particularly unusual. The unusual part is that my mom and my grandmother are both Holocaust survivors. My mother was born in 1935. And from the time she was seven until she was 10, she was actually in Belgium in hiding through the Belgian underground, separated from her mother for three years, moved from place to place. And my grandmother was actually arrested and put in a concentration camp and liberated at the end of the war. Thankfully, the two of them were reunited. But as you can imagine, Deb, that experience profoundly shaped their view of the world and in turn, very much shaped the way they raised me. So I grew up in what I'd call a very low trust environment. And it was so different from my experience of being at school or being over at my friends' houses. And I think in some ways, my sensitivity to different environments and how leaders set the tone really came out of my own upbringing. 
And I became really aware is that why is it that some people respond in some ways to a stimulus and other people respond in other ways. So all of this around human psychology and how people set the tone for other people and why that's important happened at a very early age. And I've just explored that in one form or another ever since. Well, what an amazing story. And I can totally see where that's crafted your leadership and, and what you bring to leadership as a whole. So thank you so much for sharing. Sure. Now, my second question, you, you speak of your mentor, Jeff, as both a father figure and a mentor. So what advice would you have for our listeners who are looking to seek and find a mentor? And the second part of that is, why do you think having a mentor is so crucial to both our personal and professional development? Oh, I love these questions. These are great. Um, so if you're looking for a mentor, I'd say the first thing to do is don't go out seeking this capital M mentor, like this, this one person who's going to be this all seeing everything to you. I mean, Jeff has been a mentor in my life and Jeff has been one of many. I think that puts a lot of burden on the relationship to it to be somehow this everything. The fact is you can get mentoring in a lot of different aspects of things that you need. So for example, in my life, I've had mentors around helping me to grow my business. I've had mentors and in various aspects, somebody mentoring in sales, somebody else in marketing. I've had mentors around writing. I've had mentors around my own sense of confidence and my own doubt. So you can seek out mentors in a lot of different places. And I, I think, and to go to the second question, why it's so important is you know, leadership, you know, we think of it as this solitary thing, like I've got to figure it out myself. And, you know, that is such a misconception. And I think the idea is we do best in atmospheres and environments where we get support. And so seeking people out, what I find is that people are actually hungry to help other people because it's a way to give back. I find that if someone comes to me and is really focused and says, hey, I would like help with this in a very specific way and they're respectful of my time, it's really hard for me to say no because there's a part of me that wants to give back. And I think reaching out and asking for help and mentorship and guidance because why should we have to make every mistake ourselves when so many people have made these mistakes already and how can we learn from them? So for me, the, the idea of stepping back and going, who's done this and how can I learn from them? It's going to be a win-win if I can connect with them. And I'm always amazed at how much I learn from being a mentor in the process. So it's not just, if it works well, it is a definite win-win relationship. Well, thanks for sharing that because I think it's important to break down that barrier and I'm going to call it misconstrued perception because people think when people are leaders or they're in an executive or a C-suite position that they know everything about everything. And I love how you broke it down saying you've had mentors in, in various areas and probably at different ages and times in your life. So what a great way to frame that. And I think being a mentee and a mentor is, is such a beautiful thing because if you receive help, it's always nice to pass it along. So thanks so much for that. We have seen such a shift, Alain, in 
human resources with titles. I remember when we started with human resources or personnel managers, then we went through a period where we had human capital managers. And I think that was a well-intentioned attempt to position the function as more strategic, but it never felt right or settled with me. I felt it communicated importance of people as an asset, but at the same time, it was a little bit dehumanizing. I'm now seeing a lot more vice presidents of people and culture showing up. I'm noticing companies are doing a lot of reorg and migrating to this new title and shifting from a traditional HR model of compliance and liability to, I guess, how I want to frame it to you, intrinsically valued system and putting people in the forefront. So my question to you is, in your, in your leadership and the work that you do, what is your opinion and overall assessment of this operational shift? And what have you noticed from your business perspective? Yeah, you know, you bring up such an interesting, rich question, this whole sense of the shift from what we'll call kind of shift from human resources to what we'll just call human beings, right? In some ways, this idea of being, how are we maybe even, I've heard chief people officer, right? Or I know one company's got a chief heart officer. I think to me, the shift is so needed because look, before we had organizations and before we had organizations with leaders, people worked from the home. And then along came the industrial revolution and the industrial revolution had suddenly you had factories and you had hundreds of people or thousands of people in these industrial settings that needed to be led and managed and organized. And the people who did the leading and the managing were by training mechanical engineers. So the first is someone named Frederick Winslow Taylor. And he saw the workplace as this engineering problem to be solved. And this is where the term human resources comes from. But that mechanistic worldview was such that humans were these cogs in the machine. And that may have worked when everyone, well, I say 97% of people were manual laborers on the assembly line where people like Henry Ford, who was the founder of Ford Motor Company, said things like, why is it when I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? Because we didn't want workers to think. When I say we, I mean the management back then. But we live in a knowledge worker age where we need people's ability to not only show up with a brain, but use it consistently. We live in a world of creative problem solving and innovation and being direct with the customers because we live in this technologically fast-moving, transparent world. The world has changed. And the fundamental competitive advantage is to stop thinking of people as these spare parts that can be interchanged in this mechanistic system and realize that we actually need to be much more holistic. And to unlock human potential, we need to treat people like people. I know that sounds like a radical concept. And this is where the shift is moving to. It's a shift moving away where technology is not at the center, but technology is a tool to unlock and enable human potential. And for us, when we are performing at our best, we're also feeling our best. So what great leaders are doing now is they understand that for people to create great results, they need to be placed in organizations and systems that help them to thrive. 
So this is why we're getting to the 21st century leadership, which looks very different from that early 20th, mid 20th century industrial age. Just shut up, do your job, keep your nose clean, keep your head down. And that's what went on for a long time. Now, what's interesting to me about all that is, you know, we still have baby boomers in the workforce who came of age in that time. I'm a Gen Xer. I came of age still on the tail end of that industrial age mindset. And we still see a lot of those vestiges playing out in the inherited leadership behavior that's going on. So what leaders really need to do is shift away from that industrial age, command and control, being the commander in chief. In today's world, this shift to this human-centered facilitator in chief. So that's the big shift from my perspective. Well, I fully agree with you. And I mean, you're 22 years in this business. You've spoken to over 2,000 groups. You've been in 25 countries. And you've got some amazing stats that you've put out. 71% of organizations say that their leaders are not future ready. 18% of human resource professionals think their leadership bench strength is strong. And 70% of the variance in organizational culture is due to the leader. So I have to throw in another question because I knew this conversation was going to be rich and deep and wide and I could probably talk to you all day, but where did the idea, and I'm sure your education and experience and just your global leadership is huge contributors, but let's talk about your book best-selling author of Cracking the Leadership Code and Managing Director of Your Business. What was the passion and drive to create your book and the richness of, of the writing that you did? Yeah. So for me, you know, people say, so how long did it take you to write the book? And it's like, I say, well, it's taken me 22 years because it wasn't like I just sat down to write it. For me, I have always, my, my driving force, my mission, my purpose, why I get up every day is I want to create a vibrant and alive world that kindles the fire of brilliance in people. And I realize that, yeah, I can work with groups of leaders day in, day out, but there's only one me. There's only so many groups I can work with. And the book was a desire on my part to get these tools and tips and techniques and mindsets and stories that I've picked up along the way out to a broader audience because leading well shouldn't be this mystery. And what I found with you know just thousands of groups is you start to see patterns emerge time and time again. The best leaders have a lot of behaviors in common and the mediocre ones have a lot of behaviors in common. So the book was a desire to help people to shorten their learning curve and to accelerate their leadership growth because otherwise we're stuck making those same mistakes again and again and again. And why not learn mistakes on the backs of someone else who's done it already so you can learn from them. And for me too, I also wanted to include in the book all those things that are going to trip you up. So the book is not just a list of tips and how to's, you know, do these 10 things and you'll be great. Because if it was that easy, we wouldn't have such low confidence in our leaders. The fact is, for example, like everyone knows that, this is no surprise, that empathy is important in, in building relationships. Everyone gets that. They go, okay, yeah, I got to show people that I understand them and care how they feel. Get it, got it, good. And yet, and here's another statistic for you, is while 92% of CEOs say their organizations are empathetic, 
only 50% of employees say that those CEOs are empathetic. So there's this gap. And one of the big reasons why there's this gap is because showing people empathy, caring how they feel takes time. And most people are overwhelmed and overloaded and stressed and too busy to slow down enough to show people that they care about them. So the book is filled with all of these watchouts, these potential pitfalls that will trip you up along the way. So the book really came out of the desire to reach a broader audience and to give people specific practical tools to help them to become better leaders. Well, and I think it just exudes your heart-centered leadership in the work that you do and what you have done around the world. And it leads nicely into my next question. Heart-centered leadership is utilizing the soft skills that lie within emotional intelligence, as well as being that attentive listener that seeks to understand. So what advice would you give to someone who's really trying to seek to understand and learn that it's a well-honed skill and that it needs to be in their leadership arsenal? Yeah, soft skills need to be developed. I'd say the number one thing to start to do if you want to seek to understand is take the step that I think most leaders don't take, which is partially why most people don't have confidence in their leaders. And that step is seek out feedback from the people you lead, honest feedback, and create a safe space where people can say, hey, this is what I really think. This is what I think you do well. And this is what I think would be even better if you did differently, would help me to be better at my work if you did this. Most leaders don't do this because there's two big costs to seeking out feedback. One is time. And like I said before, people are busy. But the other, which I think is a bigger cost, is the cost to our own ego. If you can put your ego aside and be humble and seek out feedback, that is probably the first step because then you have data to work from as to where you should improve. Otherwise, you're making it up based on your own perception. And humans are notoriously bad at our own self-awareness. You know, most of us tend to overrate how good we are in certain categories. So why not reach out to 10 or so trusted colleagues, people who work for you, whoever that might be, and ask them what it is. It doesn't have to be formal and fancy. I mean, it can. It can be a 360-degree formal assessment. And it's amazing how just the power of an honest conversation can give you so much insight and clarity to take action. So that's the first place I'd start. Seek out feedback from others. Well, that's definitely a great strategy. And unless you have a baseline to start from, you can't really make a change. So, so great, great advice there. What imperfection do you think you've brought to your leadership? Wow. Um, so for me, I think an imperfection on my part is been, um, I know certainly speaking about feedback, one thing is I, for a long time, focused on client first, like whatever the client needed, whatever the, to, the point, to, to the point of a detriment where I would literally kind of steamroll over my colleagues rather than give, because I was like, oh, but the client needs this. And it wasn't until I got enough feedback from enough trusted people who said, hey, I don't know if you realize it, but there are people who leave the meetings in tears after you have talked to us. It's like, whoa, that was, so that was a big imperfect wake up call along the way. Um, and the other thing, and I, I recognize this guy, I like to call myself a recovering perfectionist. 
Um, and I recognize this in others too. So another area for me around being imperfect is, and I had a mentor who told me this once. He said, Alain, here's your problem, is that you're trying to get 100 on a lot of tests that are pass-fail. And this is still something that I have to focus on, is that, yeah, I believe in doing things well, but I still have a hard time knowing where to invest that where does it need to be close to 100 and where does it need to be pass fail so that's something i'm still working on is that not everything needs to be equally excellent because we only have so much time and effort and energy to be able to put into things so that's another area that i still continue to struggle with to this day well i love that and you know there's always there's always lots of miles on the road of progression right perfection it's yeah. it's roadblock roadblock after roadblock and i think a lot of people are going to really appreciate your honesty for those two elements and i think a lot of people listening can relate to both of those so i like to uh shift our focus here and i want to ask you what i call the fab four and these are just four fun questions whatever's sitting on the top of your mind so my first one is what makes you curious Uh, what makes me curious, people that have had really, actually a couple things, <laughs> people who have had really like amazing experiences, I was going to say that's, that's the first thing on top of mind, but below that, what makes me curious, I want to hear people's stories. I am more, the older I get, the more I believe that the stories we tell ourselves shape our lives profoundly. And so what makes me curious is I want to hear people's stories and I want to hear their genuine stories. I don't want to hear some made up, you know, superficial thing to impress me. I want to hear genuine, authentic stories. Those just inspire me and I want to learn more. And I'd say that's the core of curiosity. Oh, I love that. Okay. My next question is what has 2020 taught you? Wow. A lot of things this year. I'd say one of the biggest things 2020 has taught has been how both deeply interconnected we are. I mean, this year has been, I mean, I looked up the word in the dictionary. The word is trauma, which is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. And I would say that certainly the coronavirus pandemic qualifies and that everyone on the planet has both experienced it on some level and the sense of how we're both deeply interdependent and interconnected and so vulnerable. So to me, 2020 has been this amazing reminder of our shared humanity. And I'm an optimist, so I'm a big believer that there's a silver lining that we can take that lesson and move forward so that we can find solutions to help us in the problems that we are facing in our shared humanity as we move forward. Oh, that's beautiful. And I'm, uh, you're a kindred spirit. I'm a uh, optimist as well. And I think 2020 has taught us a lot. And I think the last quarter is going to teach us even more. So thanks for sharing your insights. Yeah. If I approached your family and your friends, and I asked them to describe you in one word, what would that word be? Conscientious. There's so much solace in a pause, isn't there, Ellen? I, I, I love, I love, I love, I love the pause. <laughs> I had to think. I, you know, I, think, I was like, it's one word. I gotta, you know, I think about, you know, if I had to like take a bunch of words and wrap them all into one, that would be the word. I love it. 
And my last question is, what do you want your legacy to be? I want to leave behind people who are inspired to make a difference, to make the world a better place. Wow, that is, I think you're already doing that, my friend. You are a true mentor for me. I am very, very excited to get your book and read your book. I want to thank you for being another heart-centered leader in the Netherlands. And I know you're moving back to the United States next week. So want to wish you all the best for that. But thank you for leading the way. Thank you for teaching me. And thank you for fitting me in before a, a busy move during a pandemic. And just have a grateful heart to continue conversation and getting to know you more and and learning from you. So thank you for your time. Deb, thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure being here with you today to have this conversation. Thank you. So I like to leave our listeners with my kind of five things that I think really help us lead a purposeful life. Follow your heart, have passion, do your best, know your truth, and always be in love with the journey. Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.